If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, meet me in Revelation chapter 3. If you uh, do not have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use one of the black ones in front of you. Uh, Our passage can be found today on page 967. We'll be in Revelation 3, reading verses 14 through 22. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at FAC, and it's certainly a joy and an honor and a privilege to be able to share in God's Word with you uh, this morning. If this is your first time here, or you're relatively new to FAC, I would encourage you to just make yourself known uh, after service. Uh, It's a large place with many people, uh, but we are all about relationships here at FAC and connecting you uh, to to the larger body of Christ and uh, here at FAC. And so I would love the opportunity to meet you uh, after service. Feel free to come up and say hi and just let me know about uh, who you are in your life. Uh, We we want you here and um, we're excited that you're here. So as I said, we're going to be reading in Revelation 3. We're going to be finishing up our series on the churches of Revelation here this morning, but I do want to give you a heads up on what's coming next. Um, as Pastor Scott mentioned earlier, next week we do have Carl from Remember New coming to share about that ministry and our involvement with that ministry, and so you certainly will not want to miss that. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity to see how FAC is having an impact in the missional world. I uh, wanted to also give you a reminder that we uh, last week we talked about launching a prayer ministry. Next Sunday is the launch date for that uh, corporate prayer ministry, and so uh, just by way of explanation, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, starting next week, our plan is to have a time of corporate prayer for you guys to pray for the vision of the church, the mission of the church, the future of the church. Uh, We want to have that every Sunday, every service. And so if that's something that you want to be a part of, it's actually going to be in the gym. We're going to, we're going to make it look a little bit more pretty than the gym. We'll, we'll get the pipe and drapes and I'm going to try and get a coffee station there to bribe you to. Uh, to, to go there. Uh, but once again, consider this as an opportunity to invest in the church, invest in the life of the church. If we want to be a missional church, we have to be a praying church. And so if second service is your normal uh, service that you come to, would you consider coming a little bit earlier, setting the alarm clock a little bit earlier, and uh, coming during first service into the gym where uh, we'll have someone lead you in a, in a time of prayer for the church, I am convinced that if we begin praying that God, the Holy Spirit will move in very powerful ways here at FAC. And so please consider that after next week, we're actually going to begin a series through the book of Jonah. Um, In the story of Jonah, you have a man who had serious disdain for a group of people that he was called to preach to. In our culture, we as a group of people, uh, as a group of believers, are actually called to share a message with with, uh, another group of people. We call them the lost. We call them the unbelieving. And God has instructed us to share a message, to share the gospel with the unbelieving. But I'm afraid that a lot of us are like Jonah and that we share an extreme contempt or, um, uh, or disdain for the lost like him. And we'll find as we travel through this story, as we take a couple months to look at the story of Jonah, that his disdain for people, for the outsiders, affected his relationship with God in a severe matter. And so we're going to look at that together in hopes that we can, as a church, 
maybe change our attitude to the outsider, change our attitude to the lost. We're looking forward to that. That's going to start on September 15th, so be sure to join us for that. With that, let's go to God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And Father, as we come to your word now, would you remove any distractions? Would you remove any sin that we're grappling with or wrestling with right now, Father? Would you give us a clear picture of your word and a clear understanding of your word? Would your spirit translate these words, Lord, words just from a mere man uh, into spiritual words that will transform the mind and transform the heart? That's what we want today, Lord, is transformation. And we know that can only be provided through the Spirit. Would he be over us and move in us during this time? In your holy name I pray. Amen. In the 1800s, Han Christian Andersen uh, wrote a famous short tale about an emperor that was very wealthy and exceedingly interested in fashion. And he was so caught up in being well-dressed that he would often spend most of his wealth on a new outfit for every single day. One day, two men show up, and they say that they are weavers from out of town, and they claim to be able to weave the special cloth with the most beautiful colors and the most beautiful patterns. But there's something different about this cloth in that this cloth was special as it would be invisible to anyone who was unfit to do their job or was foolish. Or I think the word translated from the original short story is stupid, right? Whoever was unfit or stupid couldn't see this special cloth. Without hesitation, the emperor thought if I had such a suit, I might at once find out what men in my kingdom are unfit for their job. I would be able to tell the wise men from the foolish men. This stuff must be woven for me immediately. And so he gave a large sum of money to the weavers and ordered them to begin working on an outfit at once. After the outfit was complete, 
The weavers presented it before the emperor and before his advisors, and none of them could see the new clothes, except they were a little nervous. Because if I can't see it, that means I am either unfit to do my job or I'm stupid, right? So all of them, the emperor included, gawked at how beautiful this new royal outfit was. And the emperor, not wanting to appear foolish, pretended to put the clothes on and then paraded through the streets of his kingdom. As he walked... The people all followed suit, ignorantly praising him for the beautiful new clothes because nobody wanted to admit that they were either unfit to do their job or stupid. The admiration continued until a confused little boy called out, but the emperor is naked. (laughs) At this point, everyone had realized what had happened. The emperor was hoodwinked. In, in his security, he was secure in his own wealth. He was convinced that the clothing was made from the finest material. While he was convinced of that, he was ignorant to the fact that he was actually naked. The church in Laodicea experiences a similar situation from a spiritual standpoint. They are ignorant and blind to their nakedness because of their economic status. We've been looking at the churches in Revelation and and have talked about how most of these letters essentially are a spiritual diagnosis. A diagnosis for some kind of spiritual disease, some uh, of which are are hidden. Some of us in our own physical health, we try and diagnose ourselves. Right? You, you log on to WebMD, and you do the symptom tracker. I know you've done it before. I've, I've done it. I might be the only foolish one that's done it. And you find out that that mild rash is actually killing you, like you're, you're going to die, uh, actually. That doesn't do much help, though. You actually need to go to a doctor to find out what's going on. And so this is what's happening uh, for Jesus, who's the great physician, who can see past the outer shell in giving Laodicea a, a diagnosis for their spiritual sickness, right? They've actually ignored the checkup altogether. They feel, well, we, we feel fine and we look fine, so everything should be just fine. And Jesus says, actually, that's not the case. There is a deep, dark, hidden, deadly spiritual disease that you aren't even aware of that is happening within your church. What is it? That's verse 15 and 16. Take a look at it. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The spiritual sickness is you are lukewarm. Your works are lukewarm. Now it would be easy to misinterpret this verse to say, to, to think that Jesus wants Laodicea to have just more spiritual fervor, right? That's actually a misinterpretation. He's not telling him that he wants a little bit more zeal, that he wants a little bit more passion from them, a little bit like oomph behind their worship. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I want you to, to be on fire for God because he actually says, I would, I would rather you be hot or cold, but you are stuck in the middle here. You, you, are, you are lukewarm. 
And so let me kind of unpack this a little bit in that both hot and cold water can be effective for something good. Cold water, cold, pure water can be used for refreshment after a hard day's work. Right? It can replenish your strength. It, 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 can, it can help uh, restore you physically. And hot water can be used effectively for something good, right? It can be used for medicinal purposes. It can be used for cleaning. However, lukewarm water can't really be used for much. You can't really do anything with lukewarm water. It's, it's distasteful, and it's totally ineffective. And so to compare the works of Laodicea to lukewarm water is to say your works are distasteful and totally ineffective. One commentator writes that the church is not being called to task for its spiritual temperature, but for the barrenness of its works. What the church has done and is doing is utterly worthless and ineffective. This colorful illustration would have resonated with this church because of their geographical location. The the position of the city itself was actually originally determined by the road system and not by natural resources. And so one of the biggest weaknesses for Laodicea as a city was that it didn't have immediate access to a good source of water. And because of this, it actually, uh, water had to be delivered in the form, uh, from, in from hot springs of a city that was about six miles away through a system of stone pipes, aqueducts, if you will. Um, and while this gave them access to water, it would actually lose its temperature and become lukewarm and not as useful as it once was by the time that it got to, uh, Laodicea. And so you can see that Jesus quickly turns this into an object lesson. He's telling them, he's, he's comparing the acts of the church to the disgusting water that they drank from. He's saying, you know that water that, that, that tastes terrible? You know that water that you're always complaining about? That water that you can barely stomach? That, the way you feel about that lukewarm water, that is the way that I feel about you. You've become so idle and so ineffective and so distasteful that I want to spit you out. And the word for spit, a better word, as we translate it, is actually the word vomit. There's a gag reflex involved here. It's so bad. I just, I just want to throw it up. I just want to vomit it out. For me, this is the feeling I get when I try and drink soy milk, right? <laughs> as soon as you drink it, you're just like, oh, oh, right? So this is, this is a very real illustration for the church in Laodicea. And the danger here is that the church is obviously working on something, They're meeting regularly, right? Jesus says, I know your works. They're doing something. They're just wasting their time while they do it because it's not effective. This scares me that as a church, we can be, we can spend so much time 
and so much money and so much energy and resources on programs and events only to be ineffective that we can just kind of phone it in, right? We're just going to show up and that's good enough. It frightens me that we can just kind of show up and not really do anything, right? This was the spiritual sickness of the church in Laodicea. And they've grown complacent. And they've grown and become compromised. They've become comfortable. And it's important for us to see where this sickness began so that we don't repeat history. That's verse the, 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 the verse 17. When we look at verse 17, we see the root of the problem. We see where it sprouted up from. And this typically doesn't happen overnight. Complacency settles in over time. Now, how did we get here? That's what the people in the church are saying. They're kind of looking around and saying, oh, we are lukewarm. What happened? What happened here? Jesus tells them what happened. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The root of their problem, the beginning of their complacency began with their wealth, with their affluence. In Roman times, Laodicea was the wealthiest city in the region. They they had extremely fertile ground, which provided excellent grazing for sheep, right? And then they, they would actually breed a specific kind of sheep that produced what's been described as a soft, glossy black wool that was in high demand at the time. Right? Clothes made from this wool was the fashion trend of first century Asia Minor. It was one of those, like, if there were celebrities back then, royalty, all the celebrities would be wearing these type of clothes that were made from this kind of, of wool, right? And so this textile industry brought fame and fortune to the area. And as we know, wealth always attracts wealth. And eventually, Laodicea developed a substantial banking industry in the city. So this place had it going on. This was an extremely affluent area. It was so wealthy that in the year 60 AD, there was a giant earthquake that hit the area and it devastated cities uh, in Asia Minor. And the Roman Empire that ruled that region at the time offered relief aid to Laodicea and Laodicea turned it down. They said, no thanks, we got this, right? They were able to rebuild their city by the strength of their own resources, This just shows us how self-sufficient they are. And so in verse 17, where Jesus is talking to him and he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, there is some validity to this claim. 
from their perspective, they don't need anything because from a physical standpoint, they've got it all. They've got everything. Why would I need God? Why would I need Jesus? Why would I need these things when we can just buy our way in and out of it? However, they are blind to their spiritual reality. And this is the danger that wealth can pose. Wealth can distort our perception of reality. Wealth can distort our perception of reality. There's an excellent article um, on crossway.org. Crossway's got fantastic articles if you're ever looking for resources. Um, but I read this article in the, this past July, and it's entitled just The Five Dangers of Money. It's written by a guy named Paul David Tripp. He's a famous pastor who has written many books on Christian living. And at the beginning of the article, he writes how he was talking to a pastor that uh, pastored a church in an extremely affluent community. And he said that since his people are able to buy their way into or out of just about anything, it's really hard for them to think of themselves as needy. This is what he writes. Tripp says the supposed self-reliance of wealth can tempt us to believe in the larger delusion of our autonomy. I want you to remember that phrase, the delusion of our autonomy, that we have a right to live life as we want and of our self-sufficiency that we have within ourselves all we need to be what we're supposed to be and to do what we're supposed to do. Tripp's not even referring to the church in Laodicea in his article, but this is exactly what has happened. They have bought into the delusion of their own autonomy, meaning they, have, they, they drink the lie that they have everything they need internally, which allows them to live how they want to. Of all of these letters, if I could compare one church, one of these messages to the church in America, this would be the one. I have a great fear that the American church has bought in to the larger delusion of autonomy. I know not all of us are wealthy from America's standards, but America as a country is far wealthier than 99% of the world. And we have bought in to the larger delusion of autonomy. Tripp expands on this idea in his article, and he writes about what is really going on when people buy into this. What is the underlying concern of the delusion of our autonomy? Tripp says that money can cause you to forget about God. This is what he writes. Money can function as an ingredient in a lifestyle that at street level forgets God's existence and his plan. This lifestyle is more about personal glory than God's glory, and it reduces one's expenditure of money to personal desire, self-defined need, and the pursuit of individual comfort and pleasure. Those caught in that lifestyle may not theologically deny the existence of God, 
but their money supports a lifestyle that ignores him. Don't you see that our security deceives us? Our comfort tricks us. Our self-sufficiency drives us to a place of complacency. This is what has happened in the Laodicean church. And the saddest part of all of it is they don't even realize it's happened. They have a terrible self-awareness. Their wealth and their status has lulled them to spiritual sleep. What's the first step in fixing this? What's the solution? The solution is that we need to break the delusion of our autonomy. We need to destroy that lie. We need to put to death the lie that we indeed are self-sufficient. We need to understand and experience how needy we really are. And this is just what Jesus is trying to do with the church in Laodicea. He wants them to understand their spiritual reality, and so he brings it to light. He, he drags the truth out of the shadows of their comfort and says, you think you're rich, and you think you've prospered. You think you don't need anything in this world. But I see beyond that outside shell. I see your heart, and you don't realize that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is very selective with his words as there is a mountain of irony here in the original context. Let me explain that to you. In today's age, there are are cities that are famous for particular industries, right? Los Angeles is famous for the movie industry. Pittsburgh is famous for the steel industry. Cleveland, to my chagrin, is famous for losing sports teams. (laughs) Ouch. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Laodicea prided itself on particular industries, three to be exact, two which we've, we've already established. They were known for their banking industry. They were known for their textile industry due to the black wool that they produced that was in such uh, high demand. But they were also known for a medical school that specifically produced an eye salve that was exported around the world, which cured eye diseases and ailments. And so notice the irony here. Laodicea thinks they have it all together because of their wealthy banking, but Jesus calls them poor. They think they're doing well because of their curative eye medication, but Jesus calls them blind. And they feel so comfortable with their fancy clothes, but Jesus calls them naked. Jesus says you are spiritually bankrupt. 
You are blind to your reality and you are shameful in your nakedness. Don't you see how bad this has gotten? Don't you see where you truly are? Jesus has taken everything that they pride themselves on, everything that they find wealth in, everything that they find security and stability in, and he turns it on itself almost to say that every worldly thing that you find comfort in, that you find security in, that you find stability in, doesn't cut it. Every single thing that you can find in this world that is bringing you comfort, that is bringing you you a solution, isn't providing what you think it's providing. There is a huge point of application here for us in, in, in modern day, and it's just this, that all of the things that we put our hope in, all of the things that we find security in, is not enough. It's going to let you down eventually. It may feel good right now, but eventually everything of this world will let you down. We need more. We need something else, not of this world. What is it? Jesus explains in verse 18, the solution. He tells the church, I am going to counsel you to buy from me three things. I am offering you something, and I am the only one that can offer it to you. And these are the three things that we go to Jesus for, that this church was called to go to Jesus for. And they go along with this idea of being poor, blind, and naked. First, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You are spiritually bankrupt, but I can provide you a gold, spiritually speaking, that will make you spiritually rich, spiritually wealthy. And we have to notice that this gold has been refined by fire. In Scripture, the theme of, uh, of refining by fire means that something or someone has been put through the ringer. There has been a process of trial or testing or pain that someone has been through or something has been through in order to cut off all of the imperfections. Malachi 3.2 prophesies how Jesus is the refiner's fire. On this point, John Piper writes that a refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. No, a refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down the bar of silver or gold, separates out the impurities that ruin its value, burns them up, and leaves the silver and gold intact. That's what happens when you go through the refiner's fire. Piper continues, it does say fire, and therefore purity and holiness will always be a dreadful thing. There will always be a proper fear and trembling in the process of being pure, but it does say he is like a refiner's fire. And therefore, this is not merely a word of warning, but a tremendous word of hope. The furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. Perhaps 
what the church needs, what, what the American church needs to get out of our complacency is a healthy dose of the refiner's fire to get out of the comfort zone, if you will. In my time working with students, I can tell you that I have never seen spiritual growth happen more than when we shoved them lovingly out of the comfort zone. When we pushed them to a place where they were forced to depend on God and forced to depend on the Spirit. Because God uses the trials to refine us. He uses the uncomfortable situations to refine us. He uses the trials to accomplish his mission. The greatest mission of all time, Jesus Christ went to a cross and was obedient to death. The refiner's fire. The greatest trial anybody has ever faced in order to accomplish his mission. Do you understand that there is a direct correlation between the persecution of the church and the growth of the church. Where the church is persecuted, it grows. I don't know why, perhaps because of the refiner's fire. There is a direct correlation between the two, and I'm not just talking about church attendance, I'm talking about new believers, conversion, growth, there's a direct correlation. One of the most persecuted churches in the world is the Church of China, which also just happens to be one of the fastest growing churches in the world. They say that there are numbers and studies out there that within the next 10 to 15 years, they believe that there will be more Christians in China than non-Christians because of its rapid growth. And this has caused me to reflect on the church in America. If our earnest desire is that people would come to know as know Jesus as their Savior, If our greatest desire is for people to know Jesus and persecution is what it's going to take to get us there, then I say bring it on. I say bring it on. If holiness and purity and righteousness and godliness is my deepest aspiration and I have to be put through the refiner's fire to get there, then so be it. And this has dramatically shifted the way that I pray. I no longer say that prayer, you know, Lord, thank you that we can worship openly without being persecuted. I I will not pray that prayer anymore. Instead, I pray, Lord, do what it takes Do what it takes that the lost would be saved and the saved would be sanctified. Whatever it takes. This is the first thing that the church in Laodicea needs from Jesus. Gold refined by the fire. Second, Jesus says, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. In Scripture, nakedness is a symbol of judgment and humiliation. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed of it. And so Jesus came down and killed an animal and clothed them so that their shame could be covered. 
He sacrificed something innocent so he could cover the shame of the guilty. In the same way, Jesus wants to clothe the church with the white garments of purity to cover the shame that we cannot cover ourselves. And finally, Jesus says, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see so that you may see things as they really are, as they truly are, so that you may see the true condition of your heart and the true provision that is from Jesus. Simply put, this means to change your perception, to change how you see God and to change how you see yourself. To, to see yourself as the needy, helpless, and hopeless person that you are, and to see God as the provider, helper, and hope that he is. How do we do all of this? And that comes in verse 20. There is an invitation here. And we'll close with this. We need to answer the door and abide with Christ. It says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. This is often quoted as an evangelistic verse. It's quoted as if it's an invitation to the unbeliever to, to let Jesus into their heart, if you will, to believe in him as Lord and Savior. And I encourage you that that invitation is definitely on the table. However, in this context, the invitation is within the community of believers. It's similar. It's a similar idea to John 15, where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You don't want to be lukewarm? You want to bear fruit? You cannot come to a place of spiritual maturity. You cannot be effective in ministry without abiding in Jesus without opening the door to fellowship with him at the dinner table. And so it's very sobering to know that we can do a lot of work around here and paint it in the guise of ministry without abiding in Jesus. If that is us, we will forever be lukewarm. It's entirely possible to live a life believing in Jesus but never growing into a deeper spiritual intimacy with him and never being useful in your works. There's an interesting contrast here in this passage from last week, isn't there? We looked at the Philadelphian church and how Jesus had the open door of salvation to them. As believers, we have the open door. Jesus has opened the door to us for salvation and it's beautiful and it's, and it's glorious. However, while Jesus has opened the door to us, some of us are not opening the door to him to sanctify us. Some of us are like the church in Laodicea with Jesus knocking on the outside of the door saying, I want to commune with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to sanctify you. I want to change you. I want you to bear fruit with me, but you've left me out knocking. And so, do you hear his voice? Do you know that Jesus is pursuing you? 
in all facets of life? Do you recognize His voice when it calls to you? And will you open the door and let Him fellowship with you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask, Father, that we would not be a lukewarm church. Lord, I plead with You by Your Spirit. Would FAC not be known as a lukewarm church? Would you, would you give us the passion for you to get up and do something? And not just do something, but to be effective in it, Lord. To, to, be, to, to, to be useful to you, Lord. I thank you for this warning from the church in Laodicea and the warning even to all of these churches, Lord, if there is a spiritual sickness or, and disease in our hearts, uh, in the heart of this, this body of believers, would, would you eradicate that disease? Father, I ask that you um, would intervene and move among our body. As we take up the offering now, Father, let us consider this a way to worship you. Uh, let, us, let us consider... Um, our wealth and how we can um, let go of it and offer it up to you, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.